there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. A doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, Dr. Bittar, I am so glad you're here because, as I mentioned on the air and off the air last hour, I was like, gee, you know, I know he's on a flight, and will he be here? And I was like thinking, well, I was in a snowstorm, everybody's in a snowstorm, and it's like, how's that for a little ethnocentricity? Well, it, it, it's not really eccentricity because uh, I, I think it's a normal human phenomenon to actually experience that something that you're experiencing you expect everybody to be experiencing it too so i i totally get that so don't don't worry about that part of it well good i'm glad i'm glad you're here and ready to go and haven't read any of the stories (laughs) you know it's going to be a good show (laughs) like usual right exactly And, and by the way advanced medicine sunday was yesterday and now we have advanced medicine monday can you stand it it's just such good stuff I'm telling you the things we we talked about uh, yesterday's show. Go back and listen to the archives if you missed it. Uh, they're linked up at uh, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud. UK Health Radio uh, will probably air it tomorrow. And, of course, at uh, YouTube and GCN, GCNlive.com, our home and broadcast radio syndication. So now we go into our normal mode once again in the new year. And, and uh, it is 2019, our first official Advanced Medicine Monday of 2019. And I thought we'd start with forgetting things. Why not? Right at the beginning. The, the subject of Alzheimer's is not going away. More and more people suffering from neurological degradation diseases. Now, this is uh, one of those classic moments of duh for you, Dr. Batar, but not necessarily for the folks or scientists or doctors out there. Because the headline reads this, Alzheimer's hits more than just the memory. Patients experience immune system dysfunction as well. And we're thinking, well, how do you think this happened to begin with? Yeah, exactly. This is one of those, uh, it could be, it could really be a moment of done somewhere, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about, they're, they're going into these studies going, hey, you know what? There are inflammation markers that show up decades before the neurological degradation is even identified. I'm like, what have we been saying? Well, the thing is that what's interesting with this title, uh, patients experience immune system dysfunction as well, that, that, that uh, almost like a secondary, uh, as an observation. If we talk about, again, the cause of Alzheimer's, as is the cause of autism, and again, I know this is supposedly controversial. In my world, the truth does not make something by definition controversial. The truth is the truth. But this is a mercury-related phenomena. And, yes, there are the things that cause denudation of neurofibrils, but it's mercury that causes this denudation that on autism leads to an acute issue and to an Alzheimer's leads to basically a chronic issue. So it's basically the same um, physiological response. It's just affecting an individual during different stages of development. And if you look at the fact that mercury is one of the most potent immunosuppressives, and now they're saying that the, that the patients experience immune dis- system dysfunction as well in this title. Well, of course they're going to experience immune system dysfunction if mercury is a, an immunosuppressive and suppresses the immune system. By definition, that's going to cause some type of a dysfunction in the immune system. So, again, in my world and in your world, Robert, 
Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that this would definitely qualify for a moment of doubt, but it's yeah. a new observation, a new incidental finding. So I guess uh, that's why I don't read. That's why I don't read these things beforehand because right. you know it's always tell me something I don't know already. Something yes, something yes. you don't already know. Well, and I think bringing it up is is important too because if we rely and wait for the doctors out there that are not doing advanced medicine, for instance. They're 10, 20, sometimes 30 years behind where you could find these studies, and they've been out for a long time, and those on the leading edge would go, I've seen this clinically. Oh, there's a study that validates what my observations are. And here they say, moreover, links between the levels of inflammatory markers in cerebrospinal fluid and blood and mild cognitive impairment were revealed in previous studies. We're going back years. Furthermore, they said, researchers discovered that increases in inflammatory markers may occur even decades before any symptoms of Alzheimer's disease manifest. Now, you know, I go back to my history, Dr. Batar. Obviously, I went through the homeopathic side, not the allopathic eventually. And, you know, my mentor was able to, you know, detect things in people decades before they would manifest. Not because he was using analysis or or a chemical test of the body's uh, blood or things like that, just because he had so much experience in observing it. But you can use advanced techniques to detect these things and validate, my gosh, 10, 20 years from now, if you don't make these changes, this could be you. Yep, that's absolutely right, because it's a it's a chronicity-type scenario when we're talking about it with Alzheimer's. And with autism, it's the chronicity aspect has been eliminated because now you're actually exposing the children uh, in utero and then shortly thereafter. And again, it's not whether it's vaccines or whether it's the combustion of fossil fuels that lead to the mercury vapor that the mother's in- inhaling or whether it's the uh, dental amalgam load that is outgassing at 5 to 9 nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day that the mother is uh, basically exposing the fetus to while in utero. I mean, there's so many different aspects. We're not talking about the political agendas, and we're not talking about uh, the, the, whether it's vaccine causing it or amalgam causing it or combustion of phosphate causing it. We're talking about a, a medical phenomenon where mercury in various forms by being exposed to the biological system, causes certain cascades to occur. And those cascades are, besides the neuronal degradation we've talked about, we, we also know it causes a suppression in the immune system. You and I have talked about this on the air numerous times. I've presented at conferences numerous, numerous times. When I'm treating patients with cancer, one of the things we find is mercury. And we don't find mercury initially. It may not be till five, six, eight, ten months into treatment that we finally will see a test where mercury is not starting to come out. So it's, it's a delayed response. So again, when they're trying, we know that cancer, by definition, is an uh, uh, issue where it cannot exist unless there's some type of damage to the immune system. And now this study comes out and it's talking about Alzheimer's. Uh, it hits the mom- more than just a memory that uh, patients are experiencing immune dysfunction as well. Well, again, it's the same phenomenon. We're not talking about Alzheimer's here or autism here or cancer. We're talking about simply uh, a substance that causes immunosuppression and causes denudation of neurofibrils. So that, that's where universal truth comes into play, right? If it's universally true, it's go, you're going to start, the, the observations will eventually catch up with the truth, which is exactly what we're experiencing here. Mm-hmm. The, the truth is that mercury causes denudation of neurofibrils in Alzheimer's, autism, etc. It also causes suppression of the immune system. It's an, anti, it's an inflammatory marker, but it causes uh, dysfunction in the immune system, and we see that with cancer patients. It's, it's, it's all the same thing. It's just that they're yeah. catching up with the truth now. But the truth is the truth, right? There's no controversy right. about it. And no, but Dr. Batar... One of the things, and you and I have observed this, we've even reported on it, and it still fascinates me, but at the same time, it's still seemingly not acknowledged widely 
by the allopathic medical community. That is, you could find 10 people with similar mercury burdens per body weight, for instance, if you were able to determine that. And all 10 could exhibit different symptoms. Some might not even have evidence of neurological damage, but damage to other systems. And the point I'm making here is that just because it doesn't cause the same thing in everybody does not mean it's not the cause in everybody. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it makes sense. And, and your point is a very valid point, and it should be addressed. And the reason you don't see the manifestation in every person the same way is because of two specific criteria. One is biological individuality, and the second is genetic predisposition. So it's these two factors that allow different people to respond to different things. Just like if you eat something hot and spicy, you may end up having to go to the bathroom right away. And if I eat it, I'm going to love more of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to have any GI distress. And if Super Don uh, eats it, you know, he may get euphoric and somebody else does it. They may get depressed. So whatever the case is, everybody mm-hmm. responds to their environmental trigger differently. And so when you've got a trigger such as mercury, well, there's certain universal aspects that everybody will be affected by, and that's the oxidative stress aspect. But how well their body is able to compensate from that oxidative damage is going to depend upon genetic predisposition and biological individuality. So that person's immune system, the immune system may not respond the same way because their right. compensation mechanisms are better because they don't have a glutathione S-transferase issue, or they don't have a methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency, or any other number of genetic predispositions that may be out there. And the second thing is that the displacement of essential minerals, like when we talk about the mm-hmm. allergenic, the, the uh, toxicity from metals, we've talked about this before. The first is oxidative stress. Second is the, the um, mineral displacement. The third is the allergenicity aspect. So now you've just, we've just dealt with one aspect of why a person may respond differently, heavy metal exposure or mercury exposure. Now you've got the second one, mineral displacement. Well, one person may have higher levels of minerals because of where they live, and the other person may have yes. more levels of that same mineral. So there'll be less displacement from that mercury or whatever the metal may be. And then the third one is the allergenicity aspect. And some person, um, person may have an allergenicity or may not have an allergenicity to that particular metal. So we just talked about all the different mm. variables that define why a person may respond a certain way versus another person that responds another way. And in well, fact, every person can theoretically respond totally differently to the same exposure. And Dr. Batar, I, I don't mean to allude that, that, that uh, doctors don't know this. I think they do, but they interpret it completely the opposite way. For instance, with the vaccine issue, because not every child shows abject neurological deficit damage or even autism, they use that as the explanation to say that because of that, vaccines or what's in them cannot be the cause of it or else it would cause it in everybody. That's true. That's exactly right. It's a very, very simplistic approach at looking at this. And one, doctors of, of all people know that causation is not something that lives in a vacuum. So you can, there are many factors that contribute to certain manifestations of, of, uh, of the things that we observe. So you can't say that one thing that occurs in one person will then be applicable for the 7.34 billion people on the planet right now. Um, Now, I think that if you take certain things into consideration, like you take a fire and you put a person in a fire, they will get burned. But the level of that burn, and you know, then you can start defining different aspects like that. Mm -hmm. If you jump off a building and, you know, you don't know how to fly, yes, you're going to fall. Okay, that's that's the logic that they're trying to imply. But the, the biological system is very, very complex and it's very adaptive. You know, it would be more like the, the accurate analogy would be if you have two people and they were shot, okay? 
If you have a person that's been shot that's under the age of seven or over the age of 70, their ability to compensate for that bullet wound will be far, far less than that of somebody that's between the age of eight and, and 69, theoretically, right. you know, in the 30s or 40s. Well so said. The compensatory or the compensatory mechanisms of their body are able to handle a lot of that. So right. Again, it, it, it depends on what... We're up on a break, Dr. Bachar. Hold on. We, uh, listen, medical collectivism, one size does not fit all. Doctors know that, but yet they pretend not to when they vaccinate everybody with the same dose. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. I don't know what I said uh, earlier that my, my wife came into the studio and hit me on the arm. Something I got in trouble for something, obviously. Super Don was here. He knows. And now we've got uh, yes. our, some of our viewers saying that I'm competing for attention with their husbands. I'm like, ah, this is getting very dangerous, Dr. Batar. We've got to like, somehow figure this thing out. Well, it actually brings to mind a very funny story. Uh, i got to tell you guys this story. I had a patient that was getting um, an IV that we give, an IV push for adrenals. And she basically was in adrenal exhaustion. We've been giving her these a couple times. And uh, she had had a tremendous response to it. So anyway, she was getting the IV as I'm walking by the IV room that she was in. And uh, she basically when you know, this has magnesium and a bunch of other things in it, but basically when she would get it, she would get this hot flush. And, and we, everybody gets the flush. I've gotten the IVs many times myself, and you feel mm-hmm. a warm flush kind of come through your whole body, and it kind of comes down. And, you know, some usually centers like in, in the lower pelvis, uh, in the groin area, mm-hmm. um, just in that middle, middle I'm not sure I like where this is going. <laughs> well, anyway, long story short, she basically was getting her adrenal IV, and mm-hmm. she said, I've got to, I just got to tell my husband um, how this, what she said, something about causing the flush in her groin. And uh-huh. we stopped, and everybody, my nursing staff, myself, you know, the patient girl, all the teachers are like, uh, that is not an appropriate thing to say. <laughs> Right. As you're walking by, she's talking about her loins being flushed. Okay. That's not what we were attempting to do here. <laughs> you're right. But, yeah, that could uh, be misinterpreted, and it could be trouble. So we don't want any trouble here. We're trying to bring the power to heal, not something else. Anyway, uh, if that comes along with it, you know, find your spouse. So uh, here's an allergy discussion that we – maybe we haven't had it this way. It says one in ten adults have – food allergies. You talked about allergenicity, right? We've also talked about the nuance of intolerances and sensitivities or sensitivities. It might not meet the strict definition of allergies. And in this article, even though it acknowledges one in 10 have allergies, I was one of those 10 for sure, big time. It says only, uh, well, actually double that one in five believe that they do. So I think this is where people aren't getting the memo, the difference between an allergy and something else. Uh, yeah, I think that's true, Robert. I think that um, the first interesting point with this particular study is how people, you know, twice as many people feel that they have an allergy than actually do. So my my first question would be, though, how did they evaluate these people, the one in 10 that actually has a food allergy? Mm-hmm. Because I think that there are many people that are misdiagnosed that they don't have a food allergy, and in actuality, they do have a food allergy. So I think that really 
my, my sentiment when I read this is that probably more like one in four probably have it, one in five think they have it, and one in ten adults has a food allergy as being able to be discerned by mm-hmm. the current methodology or the current testing mechanisms. Uh, the reason I say this is because there's a lot of delayed IgG-mediated food allergies that may not manifest their symptoms for 24, 48, sometimes even 72 or 96 hours after the ingestion of that food. And they're never, ever uh, attributed to a food substance. And I've got case after case after case of this where we have taken people that had some massive issues and just by identifying the food allergies and uh, using an elimination diet, we're able to completely get rid of this. Well, you're, you're talking about that delay. That's interesting because I remember, again, when I was a kid, my, my uncle, the doctor, medical doctor, went to school with another doctor-to-be who became an allergist and my allergy doctor. And they initially tested my back. They poked like 100 holes in my back, and they saw what, what swelled up. They said, that's what you're allergic to. I don't know if the tests have changed because I'm not putting my kids through that. They don't really have any allergies. They've ever been raised differently. But also, how do you distinguish between a genuine allergy and, as we've talked about, the gluten that contains glyphosate? And shouldn't everybody be intolerant to glyphosate, for instance? Yeah, it's a very good point. And, and it's not just the glyphosate in the gluten, but there's other aspects in gluten, too. And then there's the syndrome X, the leaky gut syndrome that we induce based upon the way people, uh, the, the, the food's not being recognized by the body um, as being food. And so the body has a response to that foreign substance because that's how the body was designed to identify anything foreign and then react to it. And because the foods aren't being properly broken down because of the way the foods are formed or because of inadequate digestive enzymes or assimilation or whatever the case may be, the food is never even recognized as food. It doesn't get broken down into the smaller segments that, where the body would recognize as food, and then the body ends up having a response, an allergic response, because it sees that substance as being foreign and creates an inflammatory cascade. Uh, and so these points that we're making, bringing up, these are all part and parcel uh, of this issue with allergenicity. But when we come back from the break, if you want, I'll, I'll give you an extreme example, two extreme examples, where we can actually see how prevalent this issue really is. Okay, let's do it. And then we're, we're going to talk about uh, vaccination policy within a family. How when a child grows up, what changes? And, you know, maybe maybe we'll give some parenting tips. I'm not sure. I got a sense that might happen. And then other additives that make you become less active. We got that on tap, too. Stand by. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. of radio it's the robert scott bell show all right i'm looking at the show notes and there are links up to the stories we're covering as well as you keep scrolling down you're going to find out about advancedmedicine.com how to plug into the idfw do use the ahead map also the big advanced medicine conference may 25th and 26th saturday sunday at the pasadena convention center there are links to get you into that as well we'll be talking about that every week until it happens uh, so gear up, gear up, and you will not be allergic to that. In fact, if you have allergies, you might learn how to undo them uh, without toxic drugs or injections. So, uh, Dr. Pittard, do we have a little bit more on the allergy front before moving into the vaccine discussion? Yeah, I was just going to give you two quick examples of how significant some of these allergy things can be. I had one nurse who had been a patient of ours for maybe two or three years, and she asked me about her daughter-in-law, who uh, had a problem with weight. 
and wanted to see if I could help her with her weight. So I said, sure, we can, you know, see what the issues may be. Figured there was probably a gut issue going on. Long and the short of it is this woman comes to me. She's 23 years old, and she's morbidly obese. She's about five foot three, and she's about 230 pounds. And I'm getting her history, and she starts telling me all this stuff that's happened to her. And she happens to mention that she was a competitive, get this, cross-country runner. Mm. And she goes on with her history, and I stop her, and I go, wait, wait a second. Who was a competitive cross-country runner? And she says, I was. Now, I'm looking at this five foot two, 230-pound woman at the age of 22 in front of me, and I'm thinking, in which life did she, was she a competitive cross-country runner? And so she tells me about how she was such a competitive runner, blah, 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 and then she got pregnant with twins, and she gained the weight. She could never lose it and just kept on getting worse and worse. So anyway, we do a food allergy test on her as a part of our workup, and um, she goes through the, the, the treatment that we have, our ARSVs, it's a 10-week program, and um, followed up with her, and she'd lost maybe, I don't know, eight, seven, eight pounds, um, and, you know, not much difference. She had some joint issues because of her weight, and uh, so we scheduled her to follow up in, in about a month. Well, she got lost to follow up, never saw her again, and, uh, you know, thought about her a couple of times, but never saw her again. So about two years later, year and a half later, I'm at the, uh, I'm at a Sam's Club, and uh, I hear my name. Somebody yells out my name. I turn around, and this beautiful, probably 120-pound young girl comes running up, throws her arms around me, kisses me on the cheek. Oh, my God, doctor, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at this girl going, I have no idea who this person is. And, of course, my wife at the time is sitting next to me with her hand on her hip kind of looking at me. I'm, like, totally clueless what's going on. And it came out to be it was that girl, mm. that same girl. She, had, she lost, like, 100 and, I don't know, 10 pounds or something. It was all a food allergy issue, and just by going in the food elimination diet and by staying up with it, it broke the cycle, and it slowly unwound, and then she was able to start not having pain anymore in her joints, and then she was able to start running again or start walking and running and doing all sorts of different things. Her life basically broke the cycle. She was spiraling down because of this food allergy issue, eliminated the food allergies, and the spiral started going the other way and came back to excellent health, running competitively again, et cetera, et cetera. That's just one example. And we've got videos of a couple of patients, actually other patients, and I know we don't have time to go into all that, but some really, really significant cases of people having a food allergy issue for 30, 40, 50 years um, based upon medication that they've been prescribed. And then when we got them off it, how their life changed. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's instantaneous, but as you know, sometimes it takes a while for the, residu- the residuals, if you will, to remove or move out of the body, and then suddenly it, it finds life again. Instead of, as Bruce Lipton talks about, being on the defensive in fight or flight, the cells then can go back into what the, we call the growth and healing mode. And that's a very real thing as well. So reducing the burden, the stress, the intensity, over time the body may have to learn to trust, hey, you're not going to put the garbage in again, let's free up that energy that was locked away, and wow, your life begins anew. Well, actually, Robert, in the case of a delayed food allergy, it usually takes longer. The, mm. the shorter-acting allergy responses, the person gets a more rapid response. Those are usually like the IgE-mediated uh, reactions. But the IgG-mediated delayed food reactions, those are usually, it takes uh, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours, and it'll take weeks to months before a person really starts to see the, the actual implications of that food allergy start to become, or start to be alleviated. It, it right. usually takes you know, a considerable amount of time. It's not an immediate type thing. Yeah. So you could follow the pattern in and out. Sometimes it is similar. Well well said there. Now, let's talk as a parent. You're a dad. I'm a dad, right? we got kids. 
We try to raise them up right. We try to be living examples for them to do the right thing. Now, with my kids, of course, you know I, I've, I've raised them in an organic household, but I never said, if you go out to your friend's house, you can't eat what they're going to give you. I just said, listen, this is the difference in the food quality. They're going to offer you, and if you feel rotten after you eat it, I just want you to know that, you know, pay attention. And so my kids were reading labels from the time they could read, go, is that organic? And they would say, no, thank you. Um, now, there, there was a couple of experience my son had early on where he didn't know he ate something and got sick, and we explained to him exactly what happened. And so now at 19, he's not even interested in eating the garbage everybody else eats. But what if you raise your kids to be aware of the danger of vaccination? And then they grow up after you've not allowed any of this garbage to get into them, and they go, uh, yeah, you know, I finally get to get vaccinated now. And if you think that's far-fetched, apparently it just happened, and USA Today is splashing it big time. A woman grows up to reject her parents, as they call them, anti-vaxxer belief, and then shares a viral picture of the shot record. And this was a Redditor headline, and she says, my parents denied me vaccinations as a child, so today I was finally able to take my health into my own hands. I'm like, okay, this is a very interesting story to be in USA Today, and the fact that they gave positive tweets and negative tweets to it, which we'll get into. But isn't that an interesting thing for a kid to do? I get it on the food thing, but I've never heard it like this on the vaccine thing. Well, the reason you've never heard it before is because 99.999% of the children are appreciative of the parents being evolved enough to stand up for them. And you're obviously going to have somebody that's not maybe quite there yet. Uh, and so this is one of those type of stories. Now, here's a funny thing. Her parents' decision probably allowed her to be able to be able to make this decision now because mm. if you're looking at the statistics, one out of 39 children, is it now? Uh, one out of 35. One out of 35. And actually, Robert, you need to send me the reference because the last one I had is okay. November 26th of 2018. One out of 40 Americans. Super Don, we got it recently. It came out. Let's make sure Dr. Batar gets a hold of that. Yeah, if you could send that to me. But, you know, what's interesting is more and more people are becoming aware of this issue. So kudos to the parents. And you know what? It's not about us causing a person to uh, force them to do something. It's basically giving them the information and allowing them to come up with a decision, making the decision right. themselves. We all have a brain. I always say, you know, God gave us a brain for a reason. It's up to us to now use it and discern and, and, and get that information, whatever that information we decide to believe. That's our choice. And if she decided to take this uh, vaccine after she you know, turned 18 and, go against her parents, that's fine. Because you know what? The, the damage from the vaccines is really in that first couple of years of life. And, of course, if you keep on adding to it, it's going to contribute. It's, it's an additive. Sure. So they've already benefited their daughter by just preventing her from getting vaccinated with all those different additives during a time when her brain was still developing. So for that reason, she's already in a better place and, and a parent yeah. to accomplish their task. And, and I, you know, listen... Oh, uh, Dr. Batar, and I've raised my kids this way, and I know you're similar in that, you know, I said to my kids, listen, when you're 18 and out of the house, if that happens, now they don't tend to leave that early, but, you know, if you were, you get to make your own decisions about these things. I want you to be prepared to understand the, the consequences of your decisions. The problem I had growing up, and I'm not mad at my mom and dad, they didn't know, is that we, we knew nothing of food and, what, and how it mattered, how it impacted my health, how I became allergic. We knew nothing about the danger of vaccines, although there were a lot fewer of them. Uh, additives, preserve, all of these things. So I was running around blindly just trusting doctors that they said, here, take this drug, take this shot. And for me, I said, you know what? I want my kids to know cause and effect because they're going to be served well no matter what. When they're out of the nest, they're going to be able to observe what happens in their life when they act and do things or react and their body says something. And it means something to them as opposed to me growing up going, I have no idea what this language is. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Robert. This is an important part and parcel of being able to allow our children to grow up um, with the ability and the teachings that they're, they have the power to heal themselves. That's our message that we give yes. them, but also that to make them, to empower them with knowledge so they can make their own decisions, because we're not going to be there always to make their decisions for them, right? Mm-hmm. So we want there to be an improvement on our children. Like my dad's wish was always that his kids would be better than him. And my wish now after I have children has been the same, that my kids are an improvement on me, and they by far already are. So, you know, I've shared some of the stories of how my kids have uh, kind of uh, gone around the vaccine issues from their school or college and how they've been able to, to handle those types of requirements, if you will. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my son, Avi, now he's uh, in his sophomore year uh, in university, and I told him last year, I said that, that you, know, they, you may have to change universities because they're saying that you're going to have to get vaccinations. And he said, why? And I said, well, because I don't want you to have to get vaccinations. He goes, no, no. I mean, why are they having me, why do they want me to have vaccinations? And I said, well, that's just the requirements. And he goes, well, that's fine, Dad. I'll just move universities. And what was really interesting that in his debate class, they actually had a debate. Got Robert, get this. They had a debate between vaccination and anti-vaccination. And he was appointed to the, the, to the people that were on the vaccination, the pro-vaccination group that he had to defend. So he said that it was really interesting because he did a good job defending it. And, but, he said the people that were that were um, in the other, the opposite that were assigned the opposite the the anti vaccination group. He said it was just an assignment to them. But after he got involved talking to them, explaining to them, they it, you know, everybody got a little bit excited. But he was actually on the pro vaccination uh, group that had to argue that point. But it was interesting because you know he's a very very anti vaccine. Is yeah. Well, you know the thing is, and, and I've had my kids take the opposite sides in debates too, and they, you learn a lot by doing that, having to argue the side you don't agree with. It's an incredible experience to do that. If you haven't tried to do it, you you get a a sense of where people are at, what they're believing, how they're believing it, and you'll be better, even though you don't believe the same things, you'll be better to communicate with them from doing that. So that's great. Now, in the USA Today article, which was... That's actually an exercise that my my dad would have us do as well. Mm -hmm. Very important. And when I was in debate in high school, we used to do that too, just just practice. Yeah. I was just going to say the USA Today was very impressed that this article, they actually allowed the, the people that didn't agree with this woman's decision. Now... First, they announce that the people are saying, oh, thank you for caring for the rest of humanity. You're wonderful for doing it. And you think that's all it would be. But they actually put up the opposition. You know, some some said, uh, I don't do it because of autism. And I know you don't know what's in them. And they talk about religious beliefs on it and such. So um, uh, kudos to USA Today. I mean, it's a mainstream publication. But the fact that they allowed, if you will, of uh, alternative viewpoints, it doesn't happen every day today. So uh, we'll give them props when they're due. Well, I was going to tell you that uh, a very good friend of mine, very close friend of mine, her sister just had a baby, and uh, two days ago, in fact, and we were in the hospital, and it was very interesting that she, of course, rejected the vaccinations, and there were the typical way that you know, nurses and doctors came trying to convince her. But then what I found out was, and we can talk about this when we come back to the show, but what I found out was now the recommendation is to have the child vaccinated two months after as opposed to the same day that they're born. Huh. And, and I'll just talk to you a little bit more also after the break about what the nurse said. Okay, yeah, let's do that. And if we get a chance to talk about fatigue related to uh, food additives, we'll throw that in there as well. AdvancedMedicine.com is one of the places you can go to learn a lot about what we do, include here the archives with Dr. Bittar and, of course, RobertScottBell.com. Can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back.
taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, really special delivery service here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Shout out to Leanna Warner Gray. We're talking to her on the break. Your diet, and she knows Dr. Batar as well. And uh, she just delivered me a green drink, Dr. Batar. Great news. Now, if they would do that for... I'll hopefully be getting mine uh, via WhatsApp in the future. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, if they were doing that in hospitals, that would be awesome. You, you, you give birth, and immediately you get a green drink, like superfoods charging you back up, moms out there. And uh, Dr. Batar was just relating on the break briefly uh, of someone who had a hospital birth and refused like the hep B shot that they always did on the first day. And the nurses were talking about how they don't do flu shots, they're wearing masks. And in fact, they said, yeah, we we pretty much our policy now is to do it after two months. And I was just pointing out that that didn't happen because the hospital wanted to delay it. That means there are so many people going, don't give me the shot, don't give my baby the shot, that they had to change. And that is... As you said, a tipping point, a transformation of consciousness that's happening. So not everybody's so, uh, you know, vaccine programmed. It's changing. And the nursing staff there actually in private, two of the different nurses in private uh, supported her decision and also, you know, shared with her privately that they personally also refused to take certain vaccinations and supported her decision. So that, you know, I don't ever remember that happening in hospitals either. So it's, it is a tipping point, and the consciousness is changing, as you said. So right. I'm very, very grateful for that. All right. So our final story here goes into the food additive realm. Now, I've always talked about this one of my slides that I've used for years. Additives, preservatives, colorings, flavorings, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, GMOs, plasticizers, heavy metals, mercury, etc., all contribute to the the what we call the diminishment of your ability to live life to the fullest. Your vitality is taking a hit. We can talk energy, but we can talk molecules too. In this case, they're talking about that one simple additive they call phosphate additives in foods, making you less active. I'm like, well, really, they're figuring this out now. That And that doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow, but if you start adding that one to everything else, you begin to see why we're in such bad shape. Well, Robert, it's interesting, though, when you start looking at phosphate or phosphorus itself, mm-hmm. um, as a society, we are not phos- uh, phosphorus deficient, but people that are more aware, health-oriented, that don't drink Coca-Cola and stuff like that, they're actually more phosphorus deficient. But this is an interesting thing, because phosphorus is very important for ca- uh, appropriate calcium metabolism. And when you don't have phosphorus, enough phosphorus in the system, and it seems to be the people that are more phosphorus deficient are people that are more healthy in the dietary intake. People that drink Coca-Cola, they don't have a phosphorus deficiency. It's really interesting. And uh, because I had to start uh, I had to start the supplement with phosphorus because of that. So now, of course, phosphate is a form of phosphorus. But my point being, again, um, is that this is a great example of, yes, phosphate additives in foods may make you less active. I, I actually wasn't aware of that research. But mm-hmm. I can tell you that the phosphorus content in foods, and especially in drinks, that people that abstain from Coca-Cola and certain other drinks that have high phosphorus in there, um, we've actually become relatively deficient compared to the amount of phosphorus that we need. And so for heart disease and for uh, calcification issues, if you don't have the appropriate amount of phosphorus in your system um, in relationship to the calcium, you will alter calcium metabolism and you will facilitate depositions of athroma or, or um, yeah. Or plaque, if you will. Well, we've also seen that the high phosphoric acid content 
uh, can lead to leaching of minerals from the bones and weaken them too. So we talk about a deficiency. We also talk about an excess, right? Finding that sweet spot. Of course, we would argue that this is not a, a segment that says, we want everybody to drink Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. That's not what we're saying. But looking at mineral contents in foods and supplementing where need be, that is a rational way to go about things. Right. And I actually, believe it or not, have been supplementing phosphoric acid in, in my... Um in the Butar um, wellness drink, the, the Butar Kickstart drink, I've been doing that for almost two years, and I think that that's been an important part of helping to uh, alleviate some of the issues that I was having. So the phosphoric acid component, again, mm-hmm. how do you take it? You know, in Coca-Cola, you've got way too much sugar in there and other things. In fact, if you, unless, you know, the Hyper Patrol use Coca-Cola to clean up the blood stains. Blood off of accident sites, right. And we were talking about the roadkill last hour, too, that people are now allowed to eat the roadkill. Hopefully it's not the people. We're talking about the deer and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because Coca-Cola is good for also cleaning up toilets, but that's not what we're promoting. We're no. talking about using phosphoric acid if you're low in phosphorus. Yeah, well said, well said. All right, well, that's it for another Advanced Medicine segment. Two in a row. I mean, we had to make up for lost time over the holidays. It was great to have you back, Dr. Batar. Looking forward. In fact, we're in it. 2019. Let them know it's the same message, but it's important before we got to go. The power to heal is unequivocally each and every one of you. Nicely said. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.